Well, in 1901, John Garstang, a British archaeologist of the ancient Near East, discovered what has come to be called the Sebekhu steel. And the, the dating of this particular inscription comes from about the mid-19th century BC and records one of the earliest known Egyptian military campaigns into Canaan. The steel is actually housed at the Manchester Museum, and so if you're ever in Manchester, you can actually go and see this steel. For our, but for our purposes today, I want to read to you a portion of it, uh, which is about this man, Sebekhu. And this is what he says, or what this steel says. Quote, he says, I have made for myself this tomb, beautified, once its position had been efficiently established at the staircase of the great god, the tomb of Osiris, Lord of Life, foremost of Abydos, in the district of Mistress of Offerings and in the district of Mistress of Life, so that I may smell the incense that came forth, and I may be provided with the divine sensing, the great district official, Jah. Now, what I want you to get from that is I want you to notice that the tomb was placed at the staircase of the great God, all right? The ancient world was replete with this idea that the gods would ascend and descend on these connection points between heaven and earth and often pictured as stairs or staircases and they were usually atop of mountains. In one particular Egyptian incantation, a curse was brought upon the gods who did not build the staircase to reach back up into the heavens. And so it says, quote, every God who will not build the staircase of this merry ray for him, when he goes up and when he ascends to heaven, he shall have no offering bread. And then there's also the ancient Mesopotamian story of Nergal and Eshkergal, where throughout this story, these divine beings are ascending and descending, quote, the long staircase of the heavens. This is the imagery of the ancient world. And this is the imagery of the Bible. On May 11th, 2020, uh, if you can remember that far back, we were actually in Genesis 11, and I did a sermon titled Stairway to Heaven. And we saw that the Tower of Babel, that, that story was not so much about humanity trying to build this tall uh, apartment complex as it was about humanity trying to regain the divine human interaction that took place in Genesis 6 when the sons of God came down to earth. Now, traditionally, it's said that the watchers, these sons of gods, these heavenly beings, came down on Mount Sinai, or sorry, not Mount Sinai, Mount Hermon. And we looked previously at how mountains are important in the theology of the Bible and in the ancient Near East. And there are certain mountains that function as these, these nexus points between heaven and earth. It's where the two realms intersect. And so we saw that Eden was a mountain. We saw that the events of Genesis 6 took place on a mountain that Noah landed on a mountain. And so when we came to Genesis 11, we saw that humanity was, what they were doing was not building a tower, but a ziggurat, a man-made mountain. They were trying to make a name for themselves by attempting to force the creation of a nexus point between heaven and earth. And when you stood at the bottom of the staircase of the ziggurat and looked up, it looked like you were going straight into the heavens. And so in Genesis 6, the sons of God came down into the domain of mankind. In Genesis 11, the sons of man are trying to get up into the domain of the heavenly realm. And so we saw in Genesis 11 that that became the necessary backdrop 
the, the catalyst for the Abraham story that we have been in for the past uh, many months since Genesis 12. And why was that? Because there was more going on in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel than just the confusion of languages. That is only part of it. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is referring back to this event in Genesis 11 to the Tower of Babel. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave the nations as an inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the peoples, the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And so humanity was enamored with the pursuit of these lesser Elohim, these lesser beings. They wanted to have that relationship with them instead of to be ruled by Yahweh, their creator God. And so what does God do? He turns them over to these lesser Elohim, right? He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, these these heavenly beings. And so with all humanity divided up between the sons of God, where is Yahweh's people? Where is his nation? He does not have one. And so we begin chapter 12 of Genesis. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so while we have been following Abraham and then Isaac on their sojourning in the land of promise, sometimes deviating into Egypt, and while we've been looking at their lives and both their their faithfulness and their faithlessness, One of the constant themes that we've seen throughout all of these chapters since Genesis 12 has been God's faithfulness. Why is that that such an important theme? Because he is making a nation for himself. And he is doing it through these sinful individuals. God has promised Abraham, then Isaac, now Jacob, a land and descendants because Yahweh is creating a nation, a people for himself. And it will be through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the nations of the, of the world will be blessed and a reversal of Babel will take place. And so today, as we move into Genesis 28, we're once again reminded of all of these things these different themes. And so if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to read the entirety of Genesis 28. It's only 22 verses. So we'll read Genesis chapter 28. Moses writes there, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. When Jacob made a vow, or then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Well, many are familiar with the story of Jacob's ladder, uh, but I don't want to miss, I don't want you to miss the, the lead up to that event, which covers the, pretty much the last half of this chapter. Remember that chapter divisions in the Bible are, are somewhat arbitrary. Uh, this chapter, chapter 28, is really a continuation of chapter 27, which we talked about last week, right? And remember at the end of 27, Rebecca had already come up with this plan to have Jacob flee to, to Laban, her brother. She was going to get him out of there so that Esau didn't kill him, but she can't just send him away. She can't just say, go and don't let your dad know. Right? What would Isaac say? So what does Rebecca do? Well, she plays her husband. She does what she needs to do in order to get her way. So let me read to you the end of chapter 27 one more time. 2746 says, Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, there's an element of truth there. Esau married Hittite women and it caused much bitterness in her soul. But she has an ulterior motive here. She's getting Isaac to do what she wants. And I said this last time, but I'll say it again. This scene that we get of the interplay of Isaac and Rebecca and what we see of their marriage is not something to imitate. This is not something that we should strive for. This is a dysfunctional picture of the relationship of husband and wife. And so husbands, lead your family in such a way that your wife is never put into a position where she feels like she has to do this. At the same time, wives, you know how to manipulate your husbands. Don't bring yourself to that point. Let both husband and wife live out Philippians 2, 3, where Paul writes, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, and you won't have to come to anywhere near this type of interaction. But Rebecca goes to her husband, and she basically says, look, I'm going to die if Jacob marries one of these Hittite women, right? She's, she's pleading with him. And so we come to chapter 28, verse 1, and what do we read? So Isaac called Jacob, blessed him, commanded him, and said to him, Right? He's doing it all. All that she wanted. 
And he says, you must not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And with that, Rebekah's plan is put into action. Jacob won't marry a Hittite woman. He gets to escape from the wrath of Esau, and he gets to go to Laban, Rebekah's brother. And look, how, look at just this little scene here. Look how all of it is somewhat centered on Rebekah. Isaac tells Jacob in verse 2, go to Bethuel, your mother's father, and then to take a wife from Laban, your mother's brother. And then in verse 5, Jacob was sent to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. It's Rebekah's plan, it's Rebekah's family, it's Rebekah's favorite child. And so the plan worked. She got what she wanted. But in the words of the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob, we see that there's more going on than, than just Rebecca getting her way. The Lord is orchestrating all of this to his appointed end, right? Isaac says, arise, go to Padanaram. Well, where's Padanaram? Padanaram is a little over 5,400 kilometers north of Beersheba, where they are. But more important than that is that it is in the region of Haran. And why is that important? Well, after the Tower of Babel incident, we're introduced to Abram and his family. And in Genesis 11:31, we're told that, quote, they came to Haran and they settled there. But that's not where a- Abram was supposed to remain. Right? He was to keep going into the promised land. And so in 12:4 of Genesis, we are told that when Abram was 75 years old, he departed from Haran. And so Jacob is being sent back to the beginning. He is, in a sense, the new Abraham. He's going back to the land of Haran, to the town of Padanaram, not to stay, not to settle, but to get a wife and then return back to the the promised land. He has become this new Abraham. But we keep looking at the promise, and what do we see there? In verse 3, Isaac says, God Almighty bless you. God Almighty, that's El Shaddai. El Shaddai, this is the name by which Yahweh revealed himself to Abram at the beginning of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And then in 17.7, the Lord says, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now listen to Isaac's blessing to Jacob in 28.3. El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. It's being passed on to Jacob. Jacob is this new Abraham figure. And then finally, Isaac connects the blessing directly to the Lord's blessing of Abraham. He says, quote, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So the promise given to Abraham by the Lord were passed on to his son Isaac and now to his grandson Jacob. And this blessing contains the initial promise given to Abraham of a people and a place, right? A a land and a lineage, a dominion and a dynasty. Jacob is the seed through whom the promises will come. And so we read in verse 5, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now, Immediately after 
Isaac sends Jacob away. We get this very short interlude about, about Esau. Right? He sees that his father doesn't want Jacob to take, this, to take a Canaanite wife and that he wants Jacob to marry someone from their own clan, from someone from their own family. And even though Esau hates his brother, he still wants to be accepted by his parents. He still wants to be loved by them. He wants to be in their good graces. And so he leaves to take a wife from Ishmael's family. Right? Remember, Ishmael is Isaac's half-brother, so this woman is a part of their clan in a sense. And yet Esau's pursuit of a bride here is just a, a mere parody of Jacob's. Esau leaves and ends up taking yet another wife, this time from the Ishmaelites. And yet in so doing, he aligns himself with the rejected offspring of Abraham. So not only does Jacob receive the promises given to Abraham and then Isaac, showing that he is the one through whom the covenant promises will come, but Esau, the eldest son, aligns himself with the rejected son, Ishmael. And with that final alliance of Esau, he fades into the background, not to be mentioned again until Genesis 32. And so the focus of the next eight to nine chapters turns to Jacob. And we read beginning in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Oftentimes sunset and sunrise in scripture are images of distress and deliverance. Here begins Jacob's travails in Padanaram for the next 20 years. He is in effect wandering in the darkness for 20 years. True deliverance for his soul, true daybreak will not occur until we get to chapter 32 where Jacob wrestles with this heavenly being on his way back to the promised land and in verse 26 we read, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then in verse 32 we read, then the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. And so he has to labor for 20 years in this kind of metaphorical darkness until he gets to that point where the sun once again rises. Notice as well that the sunset begins with an encounter with heavenly beings, right? We read, uh, we read here, taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What does Jacob see here? What does he behold? The imagery is strikingly similar to what we saw at the beginning from Egypt and Mesopotamia. But the image there in those ones that I read you, that was not a ladder, it was a staircase. Indeed, ladder here is probably not a, a helpful translation, but rather a staircase. Jacob beholds a staircase like that of a ziggurat. He has come across a nexus point between heaven and earth. But notice how this differs from the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, humanity was trying to build a ziggurat, a staircase up into heaven. Here we read that this staircase was placed toward the earth. This is a staircase that comes down from heaven to the earth. True and legitimate interaction between our world and the heavenly world is only accomplished by God himself and his grace. And on the staircase, Jacob sees angels of God ascending and descending. The supernatural world is connected to our world, even when we can't see it. And what were these heavenly beings doing? 
Well, maybe they were just, you know, God's messengers doing his bidding on the earth. However, many modern commentators, including, uh, including ancient Jewish rabbis, have argued that the ascending angels are those responsible for Jacob's homeland, and the descending ones are those responsible for the foreign land to which he's going. And if that's the case, then this fits well within the whole Genesis 11, Tower Babel, Deuteronomy 32 worldview imagery going on, because it was there that God handed over the nations, the territories, to heavenly beings. And yet here in Jacob's, what he sees in this dream, it's not just angelic beings. There is another who is there. But first, look at how this scene is divided up using this word behold. Right at the, begin, at the beginning of verse 12, we have behold, there was a staircase. Then a second time, behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then the third time we read, behold, Yahweh stood above it the shock and surprise kind of grows with each behold here. And with that third one, it's revealed that the covenantly faithful God, Yahweh, stands above all that is going on. Humanity tried to build a staircase into the heavens in Genesis 11 to commune with the lesser gods, these heavenly beings. Here, Yahweh himself lowered the stairs, as it were, so that Jacob might see what only they could have imagined. And the Lord said to him, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done all that I promised you. And in so many ways, this, this blessing is similar to what Isaac gave him. Except really, these aren't blessings. These are promises. Promises that Yahweh is making. All that he had promised Abraham, he now promises Jacob. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so Jacob knew what he had seen. It wasn't just a ladder that he had to climb up the rungs, it was the gate of heaven. And interestingly, the Babylonians understood Babel, when we talk about the Tower of Babel, they understood that word to mean the gate of the gods. Jacob saw this as that nexus point. He saw it as this staircase that leads to heaven. That's what they were trying to establish in Genesis 11, but here Yahweh meets with Jacob, and his response to seeing Yahweh is fear. He's afraid, he's terrified, and so he names that place Bethel, which means house of God. Look at verse 18 and following there. He says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. 
And at that moment, having been confronted with Yahweh himself, the core reason for Jacob's leaving has changed. At the center is not that he's fleeing for his life anymore, but rather now it's theologically motivated. And so he makes a vow to God and he promises to tithe, to give a tenth of all that God has given him. And just as Abraham's interaction with Yahweh changed him, and just as Isaac's interaction with Yahweh changed him, so now this is not the same Jacob who left. And realize too that we are transformed in our interaction with the Lord. We don't see him face to face as Jacob did, but we see him in his word. And no one leaves having heard God's word on neutral ground. They are either changed or condemned. And just as Jacob was changed by beholding the Lord at this nexus point between heaven and earth, so too are we. Because in a most remarkable way, this story of what Jacob sees is meant to point us forward to a different nexus point. Not a place, but a person. One in whom heaven and earth meet. In John chapter 1, Jesus has just called Philip to follow after him. Philip then runs to Nathanael and he says, we found him. We, we, we found him of whom Moses in the law, also the prophets wrote, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip and Nathanael, they start walking to Jesus. And when Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And then John records the following, beginning in verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus himself is drawing on the imagery of Genesis 28. He is saying that he is the link between heaven and earth. And just like in Jacob's day, God lowered the staircase, so to speak, so that Jacob might see that God is not distant from his creation. He is there with Jacob. So too now Jesus has come to earth, that he might be the nexus point between heaven and earth so that we might know that God is not distant from his creation. In fact, he entered into his creation in the person of Jesus that he might rescue us from the evil supernatural forces that held authority over the nations and to bring about forgiveness of sins. And he did this by first descending to us from his heavenly position. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6-8 of Christ, quote, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
but death could not hold him. For in his death, he conquered sin and the grave and was resurrected and then ascended to the Father to rule and reign as our Lord and King. And Paul continues on in Philippians 2, and he begins in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because of all that Jesus has done, we now have access to the Father. We now have access into the heavenly realm through Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, we now have a means to reach into the heavens and commune with God himself. We don't need a building. We don't need a, a ziggurat. We don't need a staircase because Christ is our way. He is the only way. And through him, we now have access to the Father. There's one more thing I want to quickly look at before we close. In Genesis 28, 18, we read that Jacob took this stone that he had under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on the top of it. He anointed it, which is what is said of this stone in Genesis 31, 13. And then in verse 22, Jacob says, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. This anointed stone became the very cornerstone of Bethel, the house of God. Jesus was the anointed one. And how many times do we read over and over that he was the stone that the builders rejected? Nevertheless, he became the cornerstone. Well, the cornerstone of what? Ephesians 2, 20 to 21, Paul writes, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church which stands as the temple in this world. There is no physical structure because Christ and the church are the temple. God himself dwells in his people in the Holy Spirit. And so where his people are, there is Bethel. There is the house of God because Christ is with them. He is the cornerstone. He is the link between heaven and earth. He is the Lord who stood atop of that staircase. And he is the one who told Jacob all those years ago and who tells you now, behold, I am with you always and I will keep you wherever you go. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we do thank you that we see in your word these signposts that tell us to keep looking forward, to look, to see that what it's saying is to point us to Christ. That even in this story that we call Jacob's ladder, we're not meant to just stop there. We're meant to see that it's Christ. That he is our connection to heaven. He is the one in whom heaven and earth meet and he is the one who allows us to have that that fellowship with you, our Father. 
That's an amazing thing. Because of what Christ has done, that we can even pray. That we have the ability to come before the throne of grace. Because Christ is the way. How we do thank you that he is also the very cornerstone, the cornerstone of the temple, of the true temple, of the church. How we thank you for your spirit that you have sent to those who truly believe that where your people are, where they are gathered, there is Bethel. Help us to live in light of these things, Lord. Help us to realize daily that we have access into heaven, into the presence of the living God because of what Christ has done for us. Help that to change the way we live, the way we think, the way we pray. And may we take advantage of that and to pray deeply and fervently, Lord. Help us in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to stand and sing one more song before we go to Sunday school. As the music group comes forward, we're going to stand and sing.